Welcome to the Theology on Tap Chattanooga podcast. In each episode, we feature a different lecture given by a writer, scholar, or public intellectual. Each of these talks explores the intersection between theology and culture, and how theology can help better guide us toward the common good of society. These talks are given live at our monthly Theology on Tap events at the Camp House in Chattanooga, Tennessee. For more information and to find out when our next live event is, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Theology on Tap Chattanooga. Now, here is this week's episode. We hope you enjoy listening. You guys ready to move on to Q&A? And yeah. I know, I know sure. that was one of the questions I wanted to <laughs> get to, so that was good. I, did, I answered all the questions you wanted. Well, no, the anecdote one uh, is the one I wanted to, I wanted right. to ask. You know, cool. There are some awesome anecdotes from you know? that you didn't expect coming out of the podcast. And Hosting uh, TT has paid off. Yeah. <laughs> I can actually remember what people are asking me to do. <laughs> well, I'm going to lump these first two here together because um, I think they're generally similar. So how do I, as a white minister, preach in a way that is consistent and in solidarity with womenist preachers in particular and with ministers of color in general? And then here's the second one. As a man currently attending a Southern Reformed church, how can I effectively combat the blatant but often undiagnosed misogyny in the church? So one specifically from a preacher. Another one is from a layperson. Lay but generally asking the same question. Uh, for the first one about how, how, can you repeat the first one? I'm sorry. Yeah, how can, I, how can I as a white minister preach in a way that is consistent and in solidarity with womenist preachers in particular, uh, but also ministers of color more generally? Well, do in that church, con- well, I guess I have to ask, but I mean, I think, yeah, I think we have to let uh, women speak for themselves, right? You know, uh, preach for themselves, uh, speak for themselves, and also centering their voices. So that would mean quoting women, um, quoting people of color, the people that you're wanting, you gotta move them from the margins into the center. Um, and pass the mic to them, you know. Particularly if you're if if you're in a church context that is egalitarian, then wh- wh- I mean, you don't need to speak for her. She can get up there and, and proclaim, you know, for herself and for the benefit of the people. That's what I would say. But. I think in terms of changing the way that you live until you no longer believe that there is a norm in existence in the household of God that centers anybody but those who are most impacted by the injustices outside of God's house. And so you have to change how you raise your kids. You have to change the bodies and the genders that are associated with sweeping floors and making macaroni and cheese. You have to change the manner in which people are represented. Do people think prayer warrior and automatically male? Do people think preacher and automatically male? Do people think child care help and automatically woman? Or are there spaces in which women, and more than that, women of color, are held up as saints, as beautiful examples of being broken vessels in God's arms and having not just giving someone a voice. You don't have to do that. That's what God did. Right, right. But are you giving them the platform and not standing there behind them ready to mitigate their voice in an interview? Not standing there next to them ready to come up and explain what they said after they done? Are you ready to give the platform and then allow women to be themselves without explaining themselves? You can change your life to live that way and then your worship space might shift because God already lives that way. Are we, uh, are we able to confess that Jesus is so far ahead of us that we might just need to continue to follow him? Amen. All that stuff. Um, so, <laughs> well, and I would say, so doctrinally, I would look at things like the general office of believer. Amen. And I think it's important that we have an understanding of what it means to be a Christian, right? That we share in Christ anointing and as a part of the doctrine of the general office of believer, that means that Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, but that we all as believers, sure. something's happening, mm-hmm. share in Christ's anointing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a prophetic calling, a priestly calling, and a kingly calling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all those who the Holy Spirit is at work in, all believers, um, should be operating in the general office of belief. That's not that provocative. Complementarian churches should be preaching that. Egalitarian churches should be preaching that. Um, so to share the title of Christian 
is to be a part of that anointing of mm -hmm. Christ. And that may look and function differently in different cultural contexts, um, but it needs to be alive and living because it's a witness to the fact that we are God's people. And I would say, uh, I, would, I, would I would encourage people to lean into the Catholicity of God's church. Amen. And that's not just the church today in 2017, but the historical church, the global church, the persecuted church. We are not, not only are we not Christians at large, and meaning that we can be disconnected from the local yeah. church body, yeah. but we actually need other anointed Christians, because we share in the anointing of Christ, to help inform our hermeneutics and our understanding of scripture and our exp exposition. And so to think that one culture has it all or could do that is an expression of cultural supremacy. Yeah. So there is a problem yeah. if you only find valid European confessional Ooh, statements. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. That's a problem. Yep. That's a problem. That's a problem. So and so I would say that God's church is, is big and beautiful and dynamic. And he, it's a gift to us, Amen. even with all its warts and flaws. He's going to clean it up by the work of the Holy Spirit. But that we need the global church yes. to understand God's word. Amen. Amen. So I want to skip to this question because, Michelle, you mentioned, you know, the way you raise kids getting into this misogyny question and who they see cooking and stuff like that. Um, so anybody if, if we don't want to, you know, <laughs> we got to eat, y'all. We, we got to eat know that you know we don't want to raise our kids to be colorblind because that's not that's not a real thing at all um so kind of talk about how how should we be raising our kids and teaching them about race uh and equality uh, how, how are you how are you how are you two doing that now raise them kids how y'all doing that yeah <laughs> uh y'all know i have this um Slightly free-range model for child rearing. Yes, she does. Got them cage-free babies. Yes, indeed. So I was a mother by surprise. Although some would say, "Did you marry that man and go to a hotel with him?" You, you know. Anybody got no sympathy for you, woman? So sorry you woke up pregnant. I mean, I believe very deeply. Time. We'll fix it later. You're turning the page. I believe. <laughs> turning the page from hotel segue. Go ahead, segue. I believe very deeply that uh, our children are God's children. And I don't know if we're living like that in cultures that hold the covenant of marriage above the confession and commitment of friendship in cultures that forget how much Jesus taught us about the depths of love as connected to sacrifice, we tell each other that you can't experience the depths of love unless sexuality is involved, and yet we yeah. have no example yeah. of that specific expression yeah. of love from the deity that we claim to worship, and therefore I'm not sure we're worshiping Jesus, first of all, if we're worshiping sex, whether or not it's inside or outside of marriage. If that's what gratification is to you, you need to double check that you following Jesus of Nazareth. That was free. What I want us to understand about raising children Celibacy. is that we are accidentally oh, yes. teaching them that work, that love and friendship, that being the cousin, the nephew, the niece to your family in the church is not love. We're accidentally not speaking of love to our children until they are marrying age. Yeah. We're accidentally not speaking of justice to our children because we're nervous about telling them of the ills and the fears, really the trauma of living in the world. So how can we best raise our children to be good global brothers and sisters in God's house? We have to begin to be family so that family can raise all of the children in God's family. So I don't, I don't take for granted that my kids are the children of my church. Mm -hmm. And any of you who take baptism vows or who stand up and clap and make promises to people after baby dedications, don't, don't take that lightly. Don't take childcare rotation lightly. You got kids to raise. Amen. And somebody raised your simple self. Amen. So don't you forget 
We're all simple. If I act like I never was a child, right, and we simple, God knows. So look at us. We can't even get through a question. God knows that somebody raised us, so we can't act like sure. we're not currently children in our currently father's yep. arms. Yeah. So I think talking about justice and talking about racism, naming it, Name it. It means a lot of pain. My son had an anxiety attack at five years old mm. because mommy got arrested and mommy got death threats. But I couldn't keep him from that. Mm -hmm. What I can do is teach him the simple truth of Psalm 23. Amen. We may never be safe. Mm -hmm. We may never be safe. But by the presence and promise of God, we can practice not being afraid. Amen. 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 The question is like raising kids <laughs> yeah. in terms of self-identity and race and yeah, justice. And specifically speaking. race issues is the question. But Yeah, yeah. So uh, um, <laughs> I, I forgot. I'm sorry. I was just trying I'm to pull sorry, the pieces together. It's all good. She got baby Angela and Asada at her house. So. <laughs> <laughs> baby Angela and Asada up in her house. So, she <laughs> so so yeah, so, so Michelle <laughs> talked about the covenant community yeah. and you talked about baptism. Mm -hmm. So we're baptized yeah. into Christ, but we're not baptized into Christ by ourselves. Yeah. Amen. We're baptized Amen. into Christ along with all the people who are baptized into Amen. Christ. So it's a crowded baptism. And it is a, it is a baptism with people from all around God's beautiful globe. Yeah. And so um, when, we, when we live into that sacramental truth, it is one that slaps racism and cultural supremacy in the face. Right. And it causes us to care about the issues that are attached to the people who we have been baptized into Christ with. So I must care about indigenous yes. issues. I must care about issues concerning my North Korean or South Korean brothers and sisters. I have to care about them because we're in a very close body together, baptized into Christ. Amen. And as I have my children reflect on their baptism, they're going to reflect on the goodness of Jesus, but also the others who are in that very crowded body that we've been baptized into together. So I think, yeah, every time we see a baptism, it's an opportunity for us to point to um, Christ's redemptive, redemptive work, which is the primary focus, but it is a collective redemptive work. Amen. And to actually describe that the that uh, collective is a way for us to push back on the idea of cultural supremacy. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point because <laughs> particularly when you think about um, infant baptism—not to get too theological here—but we all Presbyterians on this here stage, and so and you, the systematician, come on, you, come on. So when you're talking about, particularly when you're talking about an infant, you're talking about a, a, a child that's one of the most vulnerable, right? This child literally can't do nothing on their own well. except breathe, and they can't do that. That comes from God, too. Amen. Same way we're breathing now. And so, um, so I think that if you can orient your child's gaze to look to the margins and to look to the most vulnerable, I think that child will always have, by God's grace, um, a keen eye for people, you know, who, who God has his eyes and his affection um, set on. And so I think that's another way. Um, and though, e even though I'm a, a single woman, I have many godchildren, um, and I'm a mother to many. And so even if I never have biological children, so I think that's another way that I think that, that picture mm -hmm. of um, people on the margins and that are the most vulnerable is very much in view when you see that in baptism, particularly when baptizing infants. So Amen. that's all. Mm -hmm. So when what would your response be to someone who says they affirm the truth of the statement Black Lives Matter, but has issues with some aspects of the BLM movement? And they didn't provide any examples, but I, I'll give one out of my own, uh, you know, speaking with my own family and getting into, into debates over stuff like NFL player protests, right? So imagine that. So how, how do you respond to people who, who would generally agree with the whole Black Lives Matter movement, but would disagree with some of the things like whether that's NFL protests or any other form of resistance um, and stuff like that. Like, how do, how do you talk to people um, who are disagreeing with certain aspects of the movement? Can you talk about your theology <laughs> of protest? You, you. I mean, I got to answer. You, you, you. I'm adding stuff to the you question. Do Can you this. just describe your theology you of protest? You live this. That, <laughs> the answer to that is so long. Um, 
I think it's very important for us to know that God is a God of disruption. And so had he not disrupted Saul on his way to kill people, had he not disrupted Jesus' daddy, Joseph, had he not disrupted the wise men, when this, the state, when the empire decrees death for our babies, we have to stand in the highways and the byways and demand that people turn and go home another way. And so disruption is God's grace to us. And often disruption happens when we are addicted to or unaware of a particular type of status quo that upholds a reality that is false. God's reality, the reality that there is no anthem and no flag that will remain in the coming kingdom. There is no space for nationalism at the throne of grace. There is no creed and no citizenry that you can uphold as side by side with God. Christina already said it. You can't have Jesus plus your team. You can't have Jesus plus even your own self surety. And so God may disrupt our certainty that civil disobedience is uncivil by making plain to us that some of the civil codes in our cities is what's uncivil. And most of the time, the only way for us to know that as we move from our house to the garage, to the car, to the office garage, to the office, and then back from the office to the office garage, to the car, to the highway, to the garage at home, to the house, and we never see nobody, let alone the marginalized, the only way for us to share God's truth is to do what God did and to disrupt the reality that we clung to so tightly, being liberated from it, feels like we're choking, but it's only because we're finally breathing the air of his truth. I answer people who are unsure that they can disconnect themselves from what they think is real to what God is bringing as real. I answer them, ask yourself how important it is that you remain comfortable even if it means giving up on speaking boldly what you know is true. So I find it funny and depressing that you can affirm the statement black lives matter, but that you cannot get behind people who are literally kneeling down and not disrupting simply because they're kneeling during something that the Lord is also disrupting which is our heart and our commitment to a nation that only exists by bloodshed itself. Mm-hmm. 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 A word. A word. A word. Um, I would add uh, that I think that we understand this uh, intuitively, honestly, um, with everything else. We understand this with politics. I mean, you have to choose. <laughs> you have to be a, a Democrat, uh, uh, a Republican, independent. I mean, I guess, but you got to make a choice. And so like, uh, we understand that when it comes to that. We understand that when it comes to policies. We understand it in any other sphere. But for some reason, when it comes to black, embodied blackness, all of a sudden, it's like, I don't agree with every jot and tittle. Therefore, I can't. <laughs> it's called common grace. And what, when I, theologians talk about common grace, what we're saying is that because people are made in the image of God, um, God, it, the truth of God actually comes out. And so they're able to, even if they don't believe, right, in Jesus Christ and they haven't submitted their lives to him, they can still hit on truth and still advocate for things that are right. So Black Lives Matter is Genesis 1, 26 to 27, period. That's it. That's literally that scripture. Um, and so whether people in the movement are believers or not is irrelevant in this temporal sense. It does matter in the eternal. We want everybody to be saved. Um, and that's my intention and so and my hope. But um, which is why this table is built as well. Um, but <laughs> wow. uh, that's why we preach the gospel all the time. But um, 
but they're, they're able to affirm, you know, what, what's true and what's right and what's good. And yeah, you may not agree with every jot and tittle, but I hope you also don't agree with every jot and tittle on the Democratic ticket or on the Republican ticket. I hope not. If you name the name of Christ, you should book, not be able to... Uh, yeah, or, exactly, or jot and tittle with every... Exactly, thank you. Piper Keller, all those. You know, you shouldn't be able to um, sign off on every jot and tittle for what you know, for whatever stance you believe in, and as a Christian, no way, not possible, because the things of this world do not align with the things of God. So, you have to be discriminant, you know, about that. But you you have to be able to affirm that truth, you know. Um, and there, and I really, Black Lives Matter is an indictment on the church. Where are we at? Where are we at? That should be us. There, BLM should have never had to even come into existence because the church is actually advocating for black lives, and, they're, and if they're truly pro-life, then this wouldn't be a thing, but you know, we all know it's, that's a farce, so, you know, but that's all I got to say. Yes, all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like congruent pro-life ethic. Yeah. Congruent pro-life ethic. That's so simple. Not yeah. a truncated ethic that has been given to you by a political platform, but one that comes out of a biblical and systematic theology that informs how you see the unborn, the elderly, yeah. your neighbor, your enemy. Sisters, yeah. It informs how you see everyone. So we do not have a congruent pro-life eth ethic because it has been given to us by a political party with a p particular agenda. Um, and it has been very successful in binding people's consciences and fencing the law to do that. Mm -hmm. Some of us already knew that we weren't included in that, so it's much easier to resist it. Very easy, yeah, <laughs> it's true. All right, next question. As a white woman, I've seen and heard from friends of color that mainstream feminism has largely ignored and continue to marginalize women of color. <laughs> it's a fact. Do you see, do you see a way forward for true intersectionality with, with women both within and without the church? Ask it again. They got triggered. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see a way forward for true intersectionality with, with women, both within and without the church? Go ahead. You got it. Go ahead. Uh, Your expertise on feminism. No. <laughs> Inside jokes. No expertise. <laughs> oh. I don't know. I don't know. I have to think. Yeah, I, this is, you guys, this really is truth table. Like, this is how we record, y'all. Literally, this is what happens. Well, first of all, intersectionality centers on black women, period. So, uh, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw is the one who actually came up with um, that, that um, concept. So I'm actually quite tired of that getting hijacked, number one. So I, 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 that's, I mean, really, it has to be centered on black women. That, that's just, that's true. And so, um, and, she, and that also actually includes uh, trans women as well. Uh, that's, that is her... That, that's her framework. She created that, number one. So you have to tell all of it. Uh, so I'm not sure. I don't know that we can link on that. Um, I think the, the problem is oftentimes the reason why we center black women, like I had come up with a hashtag earlier this year. I was triggered into it, actually. Um, a hashtag called uh, black things only black Christian women here. Um, and I remember women of color saying, well, no, women of color, you should do women of color. No, I said black women. Because, and the reason why is because oftentimes I have to, con I have to contend with the misogynoir from black men and from white women and from women of color and then I also have to deal with the racism, right? <laughs> you know, and the, the, at the same time, you know, and so that's, that, yeah, that literally sin. is intersectional, <laughs> that's intersectional right there. Right. Uh, and there's a t-shirt that I have actually it, this is not the complete one, but it's just, this one says the future is female, but I have one that says the future is female and African. That is intersectional. And so I, I mean, so I, I don't know, and personally I don't think, uh, I mean, people might get mad, but feminism is not gonna save us, y'all. We have to be, <laughs> I'm just, these are just, sociology is not gonna save us, history is not gonna save us, critical race theory is not gonna save us, and I love it. But these things are not gonna save us. You know, our salvation is found in Christ alone. That doesn't mean we can't learn from these things. Obviously, we, that's why we have the table. Um, <laughs> we interact with it, we can learn, it informs my own theology and what I do, but I, there's limits to all, to all of it, right? Um, because there's all these boxes you have to check and I'll just never check all the boxes. 
And so, and I don't like people um, trying to police my own feminism and, or whatnot. So that's why I actually don't even own the label. Because I'm like, no, you're not gonna tell me how to be and how to live. <laughs> I'm an anti-misogynist, okay? That's, that's what, so I prefer that over, you know, over any other label. I don't know if I answered that question correctly, but I think intersectionality, my point is it needs to be centered on black women. So I personally don't think it's something that white women can link arms with on, but I, I would encourage white women to, uh, uh, to, to really be anti-racist. That would help to mitigate my oppression that they heap on me, or us, I could say. Angela Davis makes very plain in her book, Women, Race, and Class, that the suffrage movement would not be possible without the movement of anti-racists. In fact, it's important for us to be honest about the women's suffrage movement. Right. And yes. if you need to Google that, go right ahead. But it was racist <laughs> AF. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The suffrage yeah. movement in the United States, in the UK, it was racist. And so it's important for us to know that contemporary feminism remains a direct descendant and thus beneficiary of a racist movement that centered the only women who mattered at the time and still today. Yeah. All of the blacks are men, all of the women are white, and all of us are tied. Mm -hmm. And so it's important, uh, some, of, uh, some of us are brave. And so it's important <laughs> when we see these little articles that say, finally, bravery has been taught to us by Meryl Streep. No. Nah, baby, you wouldn't understand bravery if it wasn't for you. Sojourner Truth. You wouldn't know about bravery if it wasn't for Harriet Tubman, whom when Frederick Douglass discovered that Harriet Tubman was making moves, he centered her. Why? Because men cannot link arms with black women and tell their story, men can link arms with black women, put them in the middle, and then stand in the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so yeah. our white sisters have to do the same. Anti-racism is how you get intersectional about racist feminism. Anti-racism is how you begin to realize that you want to read all of the truth and then not tell it to anybody but your circle of white friends and you want to hear black women speak more than you are wondering are black women talking to me then you will be intersectional because you will have focused on the thing that is truly making us unequal we all know we i already know that my biology is equal to your biology right right i think we might know that <laughs> but do you have to keep telling me how down you are with blackness? No, tell your white friends how down you are when I'm not in the room. Yeah. Be yeah. anti-racist and then you'll be intersectional. Yeah, so earlier today, remember I told you that I was gonna use my talk earlier multiple times throughout the next two or three days. This is kind of what happens when I write a talk, you're gonna hear about it for a couple weeks. Um, so, so yeah, I'm thinking about that, Galati that Galatians passage, right, where Paul rebukes Peter to oh, his right. face, yeah. and that is what we see there is Jew to Jew, elder to elder, right, leader to leader, um, and that rebuke is prophetic and strategic, right, for uh, Peter's cultural supremacy and legalism, which denies the actual Catholic global gospel. I bring that up because in-group rebu rebukes are very important. And when I think about feminism, i.e. white feminism, you could use those interchangeably, um, I think of that almost as a family systems issue. Yes. And that is an in-group issue. Yes. It's an in-group issue for white women to have real conversations yes. with white men who may be their fathers, who may be their sons, who may be their brothers, who may be their husbands. That's an in-group dialogue. Sometimes what I see happening is people will borrow the, what appears to be the boldness, but it's a boldness of necessity as to not die. They will borrow the boldness or co-opt the boldness of the black female experience and apply that to the dynamic of white misogyny. And I would encourage white women to do the family work that they need to do, right. to have the conversations with white men about the fact that they are made in the image of God. 
and that they have equal dignity and that they ought to be treated as co-laborers mm -hmm. and co-heirs in Christ if they are Christians. They gotta do that in-group family work. See, I'm not in the family. I'm not in the family. Yeah. And it's a much, it's a mu I think it's a much more profound conversation. It's an intense conversation. But when you are in group, you can have those talks. So the conversations that I have with black men, yes. right? I can have conversations with black men about, we're down on this racism thing. However. But where are you on sexism? Yeah. So yes, in group. I can have that conversation in group, yeah. because I'm in group. And that black man is not going to doubt my love and loyalty towards the cause or the injustice or that he experiences. Because I have receipts. receipts. We got receipts. your word, receipts. So. Deep down, that's still what that, the podcast is called. That's true. But that's but that's an in that's an in group rebuke, and we have to resist the urge to pull other people yes. in and yes. use us as a proxy yeah. to do that that's work. True. Because when we begin, to, when we get used at the proxy, people come for us. And they come for us in a dehumanizing way. Because we're not wives, and we're not the sisters, and we're not, we're not the mothers. That's what we are. And so that's very unloving. So in group, white feminists have got to do their work and not pull black women into that. Because those white men then come for us. And that is their battle to handle. And they can do it. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. That's an actual testimony. Come yep. on. Yep, yep, yep. Come on. So which part of the conversations that you are all a part of right now do you find the most disheartening? And which part do you find the most encouraging? So the conversations that you all are involved in right now, what part of that is the most disheartening to you in this moment? So maybe not even six months ago, but like right now. And what part's the most encouraging? Conversations that we're a part of. Ooh, Jesus. He's all right. oh, no. I think I just kind of buried my head in the sand this year. <laughs> Let's try again. So, so maybe try and answer the encouraging part <laughs> oh first. Oh my gosh, that episode was so dramatic. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. So what's most encouraging? Let me start with the positives. Um, we like what? what? It won't sound like it's positive at first, though. But, then, but it's but it's going to make a turn. It's truth table. It's like therapy. It's going to make a turn to something positive. So over the last, I guess, year and a half. So my background is in trauma therapy. So over the last year and a half, I think that we, ex the nation, and many people, survivors of all forms of abuse, experience uh, vicarious re-traumatization by the elevation of misogynists to political leadership in our country. Yes. I'm gonna stop there for a second. Yes. So. Look that this. one phrase. Unpack that. And that vicarious re-traumatization, the benefit of that experience, okay. see, I'm making a turn, there we go. turn, is that it triggered a dynamic in the country, mm. a Me Too dynamic in the country, right. Right. a boldness that says, you know what? I'm going to tell my story. And matter of fact, you know what? I'm about to call out some names. Yeah. That's what it did. Hey. So, so even out of the pain and the vicarious trauma yeah. of what was experienced, yeah. I do believe that something cracked and something is coming forward yeah. where there are people that are owning their own story and they are calling Amen. for things to be made right. Yeah. So that's actually a very encouraging conversation, what I've been seeing, uh, particularly true. from women and men who yes. are survivors Amen. of a variety of that's forms true. of abuse, um, speaking the reality of their experience uh, stepping on the shame of it, not being tricked by it, and oh. calling people into oh. repentance by calling them out by name and the systems that protect them, like Hollywood or the government, and woefully, the, the church. church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a blessing. Yay! Praise God. Jesus is the name. That's, that's good. good. That's good. We all yeah. gotta answer that. I could just be like, and, and, and. You don't have to. Amen. Beautiful, positive things um, coming out. I know there are. There really are. I, I believe one of the greatest experiences that at least we've had, and I've had personally in conversations, um, is that people are more willing and ready to be their whole selves with yeah. folks that they've been conditioned to fear. And I think that it's still not enough, nowhere near, obviously, but I believe that there are more and more people 
like this room would not have been full a few years ago. Sure. Yeah, uh, we true. certainly wouldn't have had a podcast for real long. It would be like you could choose you choose your church membership or you choose the podcast. Which one true, is it? True. Yeah. Um, but we are in a space where <laughs> we're authentically saying it's time for us. It's time for us to be completely honest. And it's still not enough people. But we have been able to have conversations, especially among our brothers and sisters who are black, who are ready to say, across generational lines, over 50, our mothers and fathers who are black are saying, I'm done pretending that blackness is not berated in the church. Mm -hmm. Under 20, our babies are coming up. They're getting to college already knowing all about Dr. King, who Baldwin was. They know about Malcolm X, and they are boldly saying that blackness does not exist at the behest of whiteness. And right here in our generation, from older millennials to Gen Xers, we are experiencing a bravery that the saints behind us have been praying that we would have for years. Mm -hmm. So we are leaving behind the idea that your paycheck is security. We're leaving behind the idea that multi-ethnic church is an end and that we should just rejoice because we all do both spirituals and Chris Tomlin songs. We're leaving behind the idea that us holding hands and skipping through a meadow is all the hard work we have to do. We are now becoming bold enough just inside the family of blackness. We're becoming bold enough to say, wow, my history did not start in the belly of a slave ship. My history began in the imagination and the will of the Most High God. And that is so beautiful that we are able to live so boldly in ambivalence, in ambivalence to the artifice of whiteness that our white brothers and sisters are actually beginning to go, you know what? I'm going to be ambivalent to white superstition too. And we're finally able to really connect and to stop being simply cordial. So much like what Christina said, it doesn't sound 100% positive. Oh, I'm so glad we're getting real. (laughs) But the truth is, I'm able to navigate dissonance with people who aren't like me when I know who I am and when I let them know I know who I am. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's why you don't have to make me safe up in your church because I'm not afraid. Amen. She ain't never scared, this is a fact. She ain't never scared. <laughs> Michelle, be, <laughs> fun anecdote before I answer this question. Michelle be like, I'm at a protest. I just want y'all to know the cops about to shoot us. I'm like, girl, get in the house. Behind a column. Look, we can't. What? what? Go home. <laughs> Literally. Literally. Go Literally, home. that's our group We are chat. not helpful. We're not. You can tell who's moved. the protester. We are moved. Not we are protester. Moved. <laughs> We are Protester. moved by yes. We are moved by the oppressed and the oppressor. I'm like I can't no. <laughs> so What's happening? Uh, no, but everything yes to everything that they said. I would say um, what's been really encouraging uh, has it's been the awakening. I think I'd say within our group, you know, of Black millennial Christians too, right? Uh, we've been able. I've seen Genesis. or not millennial. Well, you know. Our peer group, how about that? Amen. Our peer group. You, we've we've seen, we've had our friends, you know, uh, our in our group chat tell us how we've moved, emboldened them, you know, and pushed them. They've made legitimate changes, like substantial changes, just, you know, just from us, you know, just doing life together, life on life. But I would also say, even my um, non-black people of color, particularly my uh, Asian brothers and sisters, they've really begun. Uh, to decolonize and just begin to awaken. And I think the question for uh, people in the woke contingent is, is there room for people who are awakening, right? (laughs) Um, uh, Is there room for people that are awakening who are beginning this journey of consciousness? Um, And I've I've been seeing that a lot with, particularly my um, Asian brothers and sisters who are really beginning to speak boldly to these issues, who are beginning to shun the minority, um, um, I'm sorry, uh, my, yeah, the minority, the, the, uh, the, the um, oh my yeah. gosh, model minority, there we yeah, go, there go. model minority um, <laughs> label um, for its anti-blackness, right, 
um, and it's divisiveness. And so that for me has been very encouraging. So that's something that's been like, all right, yes, turn up, keep going, keep going. You know, now talk to you. That's the truth table photographer right there. Put him up. Hey. So yeah, so that's something that's been really encouraging, like seeing people really boldly do that. So now I need people to call out anti-blackness next week at Thanksgiving. That really is a true test, though. That's the true okay. test. Just okay. in time. Yeah, I mean, seriously. After that, you, you know, eat your Facebook food, Facebook isn't enough. Bring when you eating table. that that pie, when you eating, you know, you're, I don't One know, everybody's pumpkin. eating your, your pumpkin, your turkey, your kimchi. Are you talking to your family, though, you know, about anti-blackness? <laughs> that is important. So, And, and so, where, do you, yeah. where do you suggest people start? to have that conversation, like how can I begin that conversation at my Thanksgiving table with my parents who, you know, like the example I gave about the NFL players, like where, can you give us some resources? And honestly, what, I think it was your second to last podcast was actually really helpful with this. You guys each like gave out some resources. Um, so you guys should definitely check out that episode of their podcast if you haven't yet. Um, but how do you suggest to people going back to their Thanksgiving table to, to begin these conversations with their family to help push this forward? Well, I don't know. See, my I'm not interested in pushing that. Well, I, well, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. For me personally, my family is very political. I mean, so this is, and it's a black family and it's an African family. So you can talk politics all the time. So that's just something that naturally, and if you see on the podcast, I'm the most political one. And so, uh, I mean, that's just something that kind of comes up. But I think even under the, even if your family's not political, I think under this climate, I don't think you can help but have this conversation because of who is in office right now. I mean, there's, there's crazy things coming happen every single day. So I don't think that you can really avoid it anymore. We're just not under normal circumstances. So I think that you'll always have that opening to, um, to, to actually speak up. That The question is, will you have the boldness and the courage to actually push back um, on the racist things that you hear or the things that are like, that's dehumanizing. Uh, so that that would be my own thing. I think I don't think it's a lack of opportunity. I think it's a lack of will or courage. Yeah, yeah. Amen. I want black women to be very wary of this question. I want you to look at each other and look in your mirror. Look at the God who made you and know you ain't nobody's mammy. You ain't Oprah, and well. you ain't the Q and A service. I want you to understand that there are things that you will share in the household of faith and in the body of Christ, that how you live may be a lesson. How you live may be itself an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to bear witness between you and someone else who is afraid of confronting their families. But I want you to know that you do not have to embody somebody else's fear in order to share their burden. You were born carrying that burden. You were born burdened with the hatred that the United States planted in the soil when they spilled the first drop of native blood. You were born with the burden of having to explain stuff before you could be a human. You were born with that. And so be very careful when you decide you want to educate a white person because you are actually an opportunity to a lot of folk. You're just an opportunity. You're just a check. This book was recommended to me by a black person who has a vagina. It must be good. White brothers and sisters parts, must parts. struggle through the dissonance of being afraid, of being confused, of learning things, of discovering things by holding on to God's hand, not yours. You don't get to go from being treated yeah, like yeah. a cockroach and all of a sudden you a guru just because we free now. Now, you're not the Holy Spirit. You are indwelled by him. My family, my brothers and sisters of color, my black women, my sisters, our blood is the same blood. And so I don't want you to think that you can't help your white friends in the house when they're like, what you think about this chapter? But I do want you to be very careful when they ask you for a script of how they should talk when they have their own family conversations. You don't need a code switch for people that need to use the very language that they were raised with 
to do the work that they should have done generations ago. Well, it's a word. It's a word. It's a word. Yeah. No, I think it's a real burden. And I also, I also would say that it is, it's a burden, but it's also a false uh, token that there are people of color who crave. They crave being the magical That's right. Negro. That's who can tell you oh, how to yeah. do things. Oh, it's the family, it's the in-house one so right here. It's in-house, she going that. She going. So, it's, so it's tempting to Come answer on, Christina. questions even outside of like your scope. I mean, you can speak as an individual person with lived experiences, but there are actually people who study like social psych and intercultural development and family systems and family dynamics. I mean like, you know? But, it, but it, it is seductive. It's like if someone asked me like a real serious policy political question. I mean, I guess I could answer it. But I didn't study policy. That's not what I studied. I can tell you what I think, yeah. right? But I can't tell you what I know, right? And so that temptation, even for people of color, I would say resist that. There is a beauty in humility. There's a beauty in saying like, I'm, I don't know a lot about that. I just don't know a lot about that yet. And I think that's just as freeing as also pushing back, yeah. right, on being people's folks who answer these questions. I do think a piece of what bubbled up was using the voice that you have learned from your own family and bringing that back. Yep. This is yep. who we said we were that's as a right. family. That's right. And that's a long-standing, uh, you know, MLK civil rights movement technique, so to speak, to use who we said we are and to hold the mirror up and say, are we who we said we are? Covenant Mom lawsuit. and dad, mm -hmm. are we who we said mm -hmm. we are? So I would say that's for any, I mean, that's for mm -hmm. any family, any church, community, anybody, is to hold up who we said we are and how close, how congruent are we to our ideal self. Mm -hmm. yep. All right, so it's 8.40. And I want to give people time to be able to check out the merch table. Uh, there's some posters, some notebooks over there. Um, and was there anything else you guys wanted to talk about? Anything else you wanted to add? Anything else you want to add? Go to church. Go to Go church. To church. <laughs> Go to church, yes. I'll say don't be afraid to make mistakes. I think what we do is we equate yes. failure with worthlessness. Um, and so we're afraid to say the wrong mm -hmm. thing. We're afraid to not give a pithy yeah. response when yeah. we're called upon. Or don't be afraid to say something dumb. Yeah. Be yeah. humble <laughs> enough. Right, right. Be humble enough to say, "Woo, that was dumb." <laughs> that is shoo. Because if we want <laughs> solidarity, our brother um, Duke Kwan says this: if we want solidarity, we have to start with humility. Yes. If we want to be one with Jesus, we have to know that we need him. So yeah. if we want to be one with each other, mm -hmm. we have to know that you ain't the whole body, boo-boo. You probably just the pinky toe. Yeah. Yeah. But glad right. to be on the body. See? Glad but you're still on, on the body. You that's integral. That's humility. You At integral to this body. In the body. Then need we need toes. <laughs> we need toes. Balance. Balance. That's, yes. There you go. That's it. That's it. <laughs> well, I think I got to about 20% maybe of the questions that actually came in. So there's a lot of other unanswered questions out there. But um, to, just to, like, to leave this, uh, when can we expect season two to get started? Well, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. I'm proud of myself. You take it. You go take it over. Uh, we're thinking our plan, we're hoping February is our hope. So pray for us. We have to. It's not that far away, y'all. It really ain't. That's why I'm like, Lord, can we do February? <laughs> I mean, we hope to. We really, <laughs> we hope to, because Black Panther comes out in February, so that's why. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. so that's an incentive for us. <laughs> we all going, right? I hope we all going. So yeah, so uh, we're hoping for February. Keep us in your prayers. We have a lot of stuff we have to do during this time and. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, y'all know we have a PayPal, so you can go to our Twitter page. Our linker, our link is there. Our resident <laughs> and you can capitalist. give to Truth Table and support our cause. Socialism. And the, uh, I am so <laughs> not capitalist. Money. But uh, the, you our poster. I'm really not though. You know this is true. You know this. You know this. And so <laughs> our posters are are going for ten dollars. Notebooks are five bucks. Um, cash Venmo. What else do we have going? Art City Defenders. 
Our city defenders, they're my lawyers, so you know they don't spend a lot of money on the kid. Um, if you want to, if you want to donate, lots of if you want to donate to their bail fund, talk to me or look up um, archcitydefenders.org. And always, always the movement in St. Louis, whoo, hallelujah. Yes. Black liberation in St. Louis is the yes. heart of what I do there, so please get in touch. Yeah, and if you want season two to come back, please give to Arch City Defenders. <laughs> They, they won't let me bring my in, microphone in the, in the, in the jail cell. cell. You know, so we need her to be free. So, <laughs> there's no table without us. <laughs> what you gonna leave? What you gonna leave us with? Anything, the, yeah. the people. What you gonna leave us with? Grace. <laughs> no, yes. <laughs> grace. 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 Oh yeah, we have a follow us on twi Twitter at Truth Table, um, and our Instagram at Truth Table as well. So, sorry. Oh, you said Grace. That's like literally. That's grace. literally Christina. Yes. Like Grace. grace. Like, like we need go to therapy too. Grace and therapy. If you need to go to therapy, go to therapy no. for real, for real. Stop playing games. Go to therapy. Um, stop playing games. Uh, <laughs> common grace, saints. Common grace. Go to therapy. You have a brain. Um, no, but literally, I was gonna say Grace. I mean, I think um, I would leave you with um, looking for Grace, giving Grace, seeing Grace, extending Grace, <laughs> loving Grace. Craving grace. Be a grace monster. To be, you know, to be a Christian is to be a grace case. Yeah. Um, and we are people who are, in, you know, grace fills us, grace completes us, and we give grace. Amen. And we give as much grace as we think we need. Uh -oh. Amen. Amen. And so to the extent that we think we need a lot of grace, mm -mm. we she give a lot of grace. Lot of so that will be my last little teaspoon. Amen. Amen and goodbye. All right, y'all, remember you can see him tomorrow at Lee. Please give them a hand. Thank you all for being here. Thanks for listening to the Theology on Tap Chattanooga podcast. To connect with us and learn about our next live events, like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Theology on Tap Chattanooga. You can also support TOT in two ways. First, leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast from. And second, consider being a patron of Theology on Tap with a small monthly donation on patreon.com. And you can learn more about that at patreon.com backslash theologyontap.